Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. But I am calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And Lord, we do now pray that you would grant to us an understanding and appreciation of this word so that it might transform our lives. Lord, if I'm right in understanding this text, we all need this transformation. So make it happen. Begin even now in our hearts, we pray. Through Christ our Lord, we ask. Amen. Please be seated. And if you would, grab your Bibles. If you have them available, I want to read through the psalm again, and I want you to be attentive to it, see if we can't come to an agreement together of what we hope and pray the Lord is speaking to us here this morning. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. We learn at a very early age, at a very early age, how ugly and really how repulsive is arrogance. My guess is that if uh, we ask the middle schoolers or the high schoolers if they can identify uh, pride and arrogance in a person, they quickly can. Now, it's hard for us to ask our middle schoolers because as Brendan mentioned, uh, they are on a trip here at Surf City, Brendan did a great job of articulating some of the blessings and some of the benefits of Surf City as far as a ministry for us. He led us in a prayer time, I'm going to do the same. I don't think we can cover too heavily the ministry of our kids there as they are in there. We have about 30 people, staff, volunteers and ministry uh, and kids that are there, so let's lift them up in prayer again. Father, we do once more ask for your great blessing upon that group as they are traveling, obviously for traveling mercies and for safety and for all of the things that you bring, all the pragmatics that are involved. But Lord, as Brendan mentioned, we really do hope and pray that your spirit moves powerfully in that group. Draw kids to yourself, leaders and volunteers as well. Open up all of our hearts to your ministry and work. We consistently ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If the kids were with us, and I'm sure the kids that are present now, we could check and see if they are aware of the ugliness, the repulsive character of pride. I think we learned that very early on. Very early on, we identify people that are arrogant. We can see it on their, on their demeanor in everything in which they demonstrate, how they reflect themselves. And in general, we learn to despise that. We learn to reject it out of hand. And so most of us from a very early age learn what it's like to try to control or to minimize, to tamp down our own pride in our hearts. We know what a horrid thing it is. We see it on the outside, and so we fight hard to master it in our own lives. If you followed along with the psalm that we read today, it speaks directly to the notion of pride. It speaks directly to the notion of arrogance. And 
to one extent, we could read this passage and assume that it is speaking of everybody else. Part of my goal today is to expose in your own hearts the rampant work of pride that still exists. This psalm will be an interesting example, an interesting study, if the extent to which we study this, that we have someone else or something else in mind. If you are going to appreciate, I believe, this text, and if we are correct that the Lord has led us all together here into this place so we can study this text together, then my expectation is that God has brought you to this place so that you can hear the impact of this text. And if the impact of this text almost exclusively speaks to us about our pride, then you need to have that exposed in your own hearts if we're going to appreciate what this text says. Jesus and his disciples were nearing the end of Jesus' ministry. There was only a number of months left of Jesus' earthly life, and the disciples had walked alongside him consistently for three years, and we often mock the disciples because they seem to have missed so much, but the disciples clearly picked up on the fact that they were with the king and that he was going to be ushering in a kingdom. And that was a thrilling prospect for them, and appropriately so. Here they are on the front edge of watching the Lord do this amazing thing that the Israelites have been hoping for for generations, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so with great enthusiasm and excitement, the disciples followed along behind them. And yet at the end of three years, as Jesus' earthly ministry comes to a close, the disciples are so wrapped up with the idea of the kingdom of God that two of his key disciples, John and James, allow themselves to be put forward to be on Jesus' right hand and left hand when he comes in his glory. Jesus, when you establish the kingdom, can John be on your right hand? Can James be on your left hand? Obviously, positions of prominence and positions of power. Before Jesus can tackle this issue with his disciples, the rest of the disciples hear about it, and the scripture tells us that they were indignant. The other disciples were indignant. Now, why are they so angry at James and John? The chances are that they are angry because they realize the gross inappropriateness of James and John's request. But it's also possibly true that they're indignant that somebody got in there before them. And I suspect that that has a lot to do with it. That the rest of the disciples are frustrated that somebody else is trying to get their spot. And of course, Jesus goes out of his way then to communicate that the first shall be last, that the last shall be first, that if we are to serve one another, if we are to lord it over, if we are in positions of authority and power, that means that we are in positions of service and ministry. And of course, that is demonstrated full-heartedly in Christ's own sacrifice that comes just months after the disciples make this horrid expression of their own pride and arrogance. 
Now again, my thought is that most of us realize how gross pride is and how unattractive arrogance is on a person. And so we try to tamp it down, and appropriately so. But pride and arrogance are incredibly subtle sins. Like a disease, the symptoms of pride and arrogance are not always easy to identify. The symptoms of something show brightly, but it's not often traced back to pride. I think one of the great struggles that we face in our contemporary society today in sharing the gospel with other people is the fact that everybody in our society allows their own pride to run rampant. We don't claim it that way. We don't call it that. But that's what it is. Even in things that are admirable, that we would hear as something as admirable. Somebody, for instance, one of the most frequent things that I run into are people's expressed desire that they will not believe something unless they understand it first. Teach me this. Show me how this works. What does it mean that Christ died on the cross? And how is it that my sin is taken away there so that I might live and might believe? What does the future look like for me because of what Christ has done on the cross? People ask those questions, and with great excitement, we want to answer them and talk with them because they're seeking to understand. But often what lies behind that is the expectation that until they understand it, they will not believe it. Now, on one level, that sounds admirable. I don't want people believing things for no reason. I don't want people easily just embracing whatever comes down the pike. I want people putting their heads on things and to, under, and to seek to understand it. But if we hold our belief hostage to our own minds... Ultimately, what we are doing is asserting that it is our minds that are king, that only what I believe up here will ever affect what I believe in this world. And yet we know that's not true. Our faith rests not on how much we understand. Our faith rests not on how brilliant we are, what we can grasp of the gospel. Our faith rests on God's word, the promises that God makes. If we understand them, or if we do not, our faith rests in God, not upon the pride of our own ability to understand things or not. Pride is a subtle sin that attacks us in so many different ways. My frustration that I have self-confessed when I'm behind the wheel, almost always is a symptom of my pride. Where I am trying to go is more important than your Sunday driving and turn off your turn signal for Pete's sake. You know, I, I, whatever it rages within me ultimately traces itself back to this thought that I am the one that is important. Anger. How dare they do this 
to me. Anger, almost always, can be traced back to the sin of pride. Frustration, desire to understand, a, a depression, a, a, a questioning of God. God, how dare you, how could you possibly allow this to happen to me? Now, God welcomes those kinds of objections. He welcomes us to express our frustration with him. He embraces us in the midst of our love and care when we are struggling with those kind of issues. All very true. All very true. But at the core of what we are dealing with is a prideful understanding of the fact that, by golly, if I ran this world, it wouldn't look like this. I'd never allow my father to pass. Some of you know that my father has recently passed. Um, just yesterday we had a celebration of life for him. Um, we would, I would not, never allow the, the world to be in a mess that it's in right now. Why do we allow these kind of things to happen socially across the board? All of those kind of questions. Questions are okay. Accusations merely expose the pride that is in our own hearts. Many of you noticed that we pushed the sermon to the front of the worship service. We only had one song before we had the, the time of looking at God's word. That is because we are trying to save time at the back end for a guided time of confession, a significant time of confession. Because if we are unable to confront and unable to recognize the pride that has grabbed so powerfully into our hearts, we will never be able to appreciate a text of scripture like the one in which we're looking at today. So I'd encourage you again, gra grab your Bibles and look at Psalm 131. The psalmist starts, this is a celebration of humility. Now that sounds kind of backwards. It's a celebration of humility. The, the psalmist is basically telling us how humble he is, and, uh, and, and it sounds kind of, you know, this is one of these things where a husband and wife gets into a fight, and he's screaming at her, and he, she says, quit screaming, and he says, I'm not screaming, you know, and, uh, and quit crying, and she says, I'm not crying, uh, you know, we, this is one of these things where the psalmist is celebrating humility, but I think that he does so not because he's sitting there saying, look at how humble I am, patting himself on the back. Rather, what he's doing is he's articulating an attitude. He's articulating a hope and a prayer that is being laid forward for each and every one of us. Well, how does he do this? Oh, Lord, he says, my heart is not lifted up. Uh, oh, Lord, we looked at that a little bit last week. We continue to emphasize this. When the scripture uses the, the word Lord in that way where all of the letters are capitalized, this is God's personal name. This is the name of Yahweh. This is the name that he gives to his family. This is the name that he gives to his sons and daughters. So there's the big picture of God, that's the divine being, and then there's the Yahweh, there's that personal name of that interrelationship. So right away, the psalmist is saying, not to God, the big powerful divine being, you know, who he shudders and hides from, but rather God, that big powerful human being, whom he is in covenant relationship with. He says, hey, Lord, friend, lover, master, oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. Um, this seems like an invitation for, for a low self-esteem. 
And let me correct that for one second, too, because I need to hit on that. Uh, low self-esteem is, is a, a struggle, is a challenge. Obviously, all of us know people that struggle in that, in that level, and there are many facets, many avenues that give rise to those kind of difficulties that we need to embrace as brothers and sisters and help one another to understand the blessings that they are in God's sight. But some of you also know that low self-esteem sometimes is nothing more than a cover for pride. It's nothing more than a, a shell of pride itself. Now, not always. And the, the challenge of guiding people, helping them through different things is essential. And here the psalmist says, my heart is not lifted up. The, the heart um, similar a little bit to the way in which we understand it. We kind of picture the heart a little bit more as the seat of the emotions. Uh, when I'm angry or when I love or when, I, when I'm uh, re rejoicing, that's kind of all happening in our hearts. That's the way we talk. The heart is the seat of our emotions. Um, for the ancient Israelites, the, seat, the heart was the essence of character. It was the seat of who you really, really are. Um, we, we would identify that almost a little bit more with our mind or our will, something along those lines. But for the Israelites, uh, what, what he's saying here is my heart is not lifted up. The, the core of who I am, my attitude, the, the essence of what I think of myself is not, lift, is not lifted up. Um, the phrasing here, what he's trying to say is, is that my, my heart, my attitude, I am not prideful in the the core of who I am, the essence of who I am is one who is not arrogant in the way in which I live and think in terms of my own in be being. So what the psalmist says, he starts by saying, God, the one to whom I'm covenantally connected, look inside and know that my heart is calm. My heart is, is at peace. It is not raised too high. My eyes are not raised too high. Now, there's lots of scripture that calls us to lift our eyes to the Lord, to, to, to picture ourselves as, as God in his majesty and his glory and us from a position of humility, looking up our eyes and seeing everything that is there. It's a wonderful image within the scriptures. It's something that we are called to embrace consistently. Look at this great and glorious God. Lift up your eyes. Quit looking at your navel. Quit looking at all the problems around you. Lift up and see the glory of our God. That's not what he's saying here. This is my eyes are not lifted up, and some scriptures translated as haughty. My eyes are not haughty. My, and lifted up eyes is what you do when you're busy looking down your nose at everyone else. And I look down at my nose upon all of thee. You know, the kind of idea to lift up your eyes is to have not an arrogant attitude, but to have arrogant actions to demonstrate that arrogance on the outside in all that you do. Not only does the author here say, look, my attitude is not prideful, but my way is not prideful. I am not acting in an arrogant manner. My eyes, I'm not looking down my nose at other people. I am realizing who I am. I do not occupy myself. Uh, occupy myself is a, is a great word here. Uh, it's not... It, it's captured somewhat in this thing, but the idea is that I don't focus 
my whole heart and attention. Everything there is about me is not focused upon this. So I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. He's speaking here about his ambition. My attitude is not prideful. My actions are not prideful. And my ambition is not prideful. Now, ambition, there's nothing wrong with ambition. This is an, an, an unbridled ambition that looks at things, what is the words here? Too great or too marvelous. The, the linking of those two terms together in the Psalms, in the book of Jew, Job, uh, and then in some of the other wisdom literature, that's the way we describe the things of God. What does God do? God does great and marvelous things. So the point that the author is saying here is that I'm not trying to be God. I am not setting myself up to do the things that only God can do. I'm not seeking to be in my ambition. I'm not seeking to be in my pride someone that I am not. There is nothing wrong with being a screwdriver. There are lots of screws in this world. But a screwdriver is not supposed to be a hammer. A screwdriver is not supposed to be a level. A screwdriver has a purpose, and that is a great and wonderful thing. And what the psalmist here is saying is that I don't occupy myself with other things. Now, occupy, again, is that key word. There's nothing wrong with seeking to understand the things of the Lord. He calls us to that at certain spots. But within this text, the context of what he's saying here is he says, my heart is not lifted high. My eyes are not raised looking down on people. My ambition is to be that which God has created me to be. No less and no more. That's what the Lord has called me to be. So the first verse here is this idea of embracing humility. The, the author is saying, look, I have embraced humility. I have accepted it. Man, if there's one thing that marks a difference in my life from my 20s and 30s, and now that I'm in my 40s, uh, <laughs> if there's one thing that marks a difference, a transition that has happened in my life, it's my, my willingness to recognize that there are limits attached to me. I'm bad at this, by the way. I don't live it out all that I can, all that I should. But I've now begun to realize that I'm not going to understand everything. I'm not going to be able to be everything to every person. I am not going to do all the kind of things that I would like. Why? Because I am finite. I am limited. And that causes me, once I have embraced the humility that dominates over pride, it allows me then to lead to trust over worry. Look at the next verse, verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Calmed here, the word is leveled. I have leveled my soul. Many of you know what it's like to have a soul that goes up and down and bounces and all that kind of stuff. And there are positive days in life and there are difficult days in life. And God's not calling us here, this psalmist is not calling us here to be autotrons that don't think our way through things or feel our way through life. He created us to be all of those things. But in light of all of those things, in light of the worry and the struggle and the difficulties of this world, we are called to quiet our souls. 
We are quieting. He has quieted and calmed his soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. It took me a while to, to figure out this metaphor, uh, this image. Um, and my guess is, that, I mean, as long as it has just taken you to figure it out. Um, when you first read it, you kind of read the words and you kind of go on it. And then you guys sit and think, wait a minute, what exactly is the psalmist saying? The psalmist is saying that because of his understanding of his own humility, because he is fighting against his pride and he is putting away all the things that would raise him up in his own eyes, he now trusts in the Lord in such a way that he is like a weaned child. Okay, what's a weaned child? A weaned child is a child who has been nursing who uh, at the smell and of the feel of his mother or her mother, he gets excited that the nursing is about to take place and he begins to get really anxious and really interested in the breast because he's excited about being nursed. And a weaned child is one that has now stepped past that, a young toddler, an old baby that is no longer being nursed and now seeks the warmth and the embrace and the tender presence of the mother, not for what he or she is going to get from it, but simply because it's the mother. Simply because she is the warmth and the embrace of the one who loves the child so very much. Not to put a terrible picture in your minds, but I, I, I've seen the National Geographic kind of things or whatever where you've got the pig, the, the sow that has the massive udder and she's got the litter of a gazillion piglets and all the piglets are scrambling all over each other and pushing each other out of the way, trying to get to the teat. And they're all, you know, they're beating up on each other because they're desperate to get to. And he says, that's not me. That's not how I approach God. God, give me, give me, give me. God, I need, I need, I need. Get out of my way so I can hear from God. Why is the psalmist not like that anymore? Because he has embraced the humility. And he is now like a weaned child with its mother. He is now at a spot where he comes to the mother. He comes to God simply to be embraced. I ask you, have you ever just thought to yourself, Man, all I want is to be embraced by God. I just, I don't want anything from him right now. I just, my life is in such a spot where I just want to feel the goodness of the Lord wrapping his fingers around me and holding me tight. Like a weaned child with its mother, that calm, that patient abode. Finally, the psalmist then says, so what? O Israel, so he shifts. He has been speaking to the Lord. O Lord, my heart's not too high. My soul is like a weaned child uh, here before you, etc. He's been talking to God, but now he shifts and says, look, because of embracing humility over pride, because of that leading to trust instead of worry, here now brings confidence in God. I have confidence in God, and you need to have confidence in the Lord. O Israel, Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. How easy is it for us to say to one another, 
during a time of difficulty, a time of sorrow, et cetera, et cetera. Hey, hope in the Lord. Hope in God. Put your trust in the Lord, et cetera, et cetera. The psalmist is saying here, I have embraced humility. I have learned to trust in the Lord. And that now allows me to have confidence in God. And you too must go through that same process, those same steps. A godly man who passed away earlier uh, this, uh, this century, James Boyce, says, learning to subdue pride is the most important of all lessons of Christian character. I, I want all of you to come to worship. I want all of you to be involved in the ministries here at Hebron. I, I want all of you to experience the joy of the Lord. I want all of you to grow in your Christian character. I'd take everything off the table, except for maybe worship, for you to grow in your Christian character. And I think Boyce is right here. The most challenging thing that confronts you at this point is the pride in your own heart. Now, how do we get to the spot where the psalmist is? It's not by your hard work. It's not by your determination. It's not by your willpower. We get to be people who expose the sin, the pride of our life, by leaning into Christ. We lean upon Jesus Christ. He is the one that will bring us equally into the same spot as the psalmist. And so we're going to spend some time here together seeking the Lord confessing our sin so that he might do that transforming work in our heart.